Well, uh, many of you have probably heard of the great Mongolian conqueror, Genghis Khan. How, how many of you have heard of Genghis Khan before? How many of you know his grandson's name? His grandson was the second most powerful rulers among the Khans, and his name was Kublai Khan. And many uh, don't know him as well as Genghis Khan, but Kublai Khan is pretty amazing when you think about the amount of territory that the Khans ruled. If you look at the map here, we'll put this up for you. There's Kublai Khan, by the way. And so put up that next slide. This is the map of the Mongolian Empire. It was the largest continuing adjoined landmass empire in the history of the world. So Great Britain at one point, several centuries later, had control of more landmass, but the largest continuing landmass, it goes to Mongolia. Nine million square miles, Kublai Khan ruled. And so they ruled all of Mongolia, most of China, North Korea, and all the way north into southern Russia, Siberia. And so they had this huge land mass, and you can imagine the number of people that must have been in that kingdom at the time. And so at the time Kublai Khan was reigning, grandson of the great Genghis Khan, the nation of Mongolia was deciding between Buddhism and Christianity. And so the father and uncle of the great explorer Marco Polo came and visited Kublai Khan. And they spent a number of days visiting the kingdom, talking with the great emperor, doing different things. And when it was time for them to return to Italy, Kublai Khan made a request of Marco Polo's dad and uncle. He said, I want you to go back to Italy and I want you to speak to the pope there in Rome and give him this message. Please send to me 100 Christian wise men. As those 100 Christian wise men come back to Mongolia, I will be baptized. And my nobles and officials will be baptized. And their subjects will be baptized. And soon there will be more Christians here than where you are from in Europe. And so they sent the message back through the Polo brothers, back to the emperor at the time was Pope Gregory, not the emperor, the pope at the time, Pope Gregory the Tenth. And Pope Gregory X receives the message, send 100 Christian missionaries, and guess what he does in response? Instead of sending 100 Christian missionaries back to the largest empire in the history of the world, he sends two Dominican friars. Those two Dominican friars get about halfway to Mongolia, and they throw in the towel, turn around, and go back home. What a missed opportunity. Imagine if 750 years ago, in the 13th century, if 100 Christian missionaries had been sent to Kublai Khan, we would have been able to reach, at least to some extent, China, Mongolia, Siberia, and North Korea. What a missed opportunity. And as we look at John chapter 8 today, we'll see another very sad missed opportunity, a different kind of missed opportunity. The Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem are going to be listening to truth incarnate. Jesus Christ speaking the truth about God, his relationship with the Father, and how to make it to heaven someday. And they stop up their ears and they don't want to hear it. What a missed opportunity these Jewish leaders have. 
Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' ministry there at the Feast of Tabernacles there in John chapter 7 and 8. And last week, we looked at some of those great verses in John chapter 8. Remember, Jesus says in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then a few verses further down, Jesus says a few things to the arrogant religious leaders that really set their teeth on edge. He says in verses 23 and 24, you are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Well, here in John chapter 8, the stubborn unbelief of the religious leaders is tragic. But verse 30 is a bit of a diamond in the rough. Look at verse 30 again. Even as Jesus spoke, many put their faith in him. Amen? Amen? That's where we left off last Sunday. So let's pick up in verse 31 of John chapter 8. If you're there, please say amen. Amen. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Amen. And the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Well, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but... A son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Well, over the past few days that Jesus had been teaching in the temple courts, some people in the crowd called Jesus a liar. Remember, we saw that a chapter ago, chapter 7. Some people were saying, no, he's not a liar, he's demon-possessed. And then meanwhile, those Jewish religious leaders are sending out the temple guards to arrest Jesus. And so things don't seem to be going too well here six months before Jesus would be betrayed and crucified on the cross. And so many are turning from Jesus. Many are coming against Jesus and attacking him. But thankfully, we read that some in the crowd, in fact, many in the crowd, believed Jesus' words. The sad thing is, though many believed in Jesus' words... Not all those who believed actually became true disciples of Jesus. You see, simply believing Jesus' words doesn't make anyone saved. Do you know that? Just believing Jesus' words doesn't make you saved. Otherwise, Satan would be saved. The demons would be saved because they believe Jesus' words. They believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but they sure ain't going to heaven. And so many believed in Jesus, but notice what Jesus says. It's not just about believing he who holds to my teaching, he who holds to my teaching. He is truly my disciple. Verse 31 makes it so clear. A few years ago, I taught through the book of Second Corinthians, and many of you know that the, the Corinthian church was pretty messed up. You know, as a church here in 2023, we aspire to be a New Testament church. Amen. But then the follow-up question is, which New Testament church do we aspire to be? We don't want to be like Laodicea. Jesus was about to spew them out of his mouth. And we don't want to be like the church at Corinth either, man. They were were okay with a guy sleeping with his stepmom, and there was just some gross stuff going on in that church. It was messed up. They loved Jesus, kind of, but they had a lot of growth that they needed to, to go through, right? 
And so the Corinthians, Paul writes two letters to them, First and Second Corinthians. And in the final chapter of that second letter to the Corinthians, in Second Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul says this as he's wrapping up his letter to the Christians in Corinth. He says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Think about that. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And so when it comes down to it, the New Testament reveals several tests to see if we are truly saved. And one of the most important tests is the obedience test. The obedience test boils down to this simple question. Are you obeying Christ's commands or are you just giving him lip service? Read that with me. Are you obeying Christ's commands or are you just giving him lip service? One more time. Are you obeying Christ's commands or are you just giving him lip service? I want you to make sure you have your handouts out right now. I want you to notice on the front of the handout. Can I borrow someone's handout? I forgot to bring it up here. Thank you. On the front of there, I put something I knew I wouldn't have time for today, but I encourage you to do this on your spare time. Uh, when I taught through that passage in Second Corinthians years ago, I went and I searched the New Testament for these tests to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And I came up with these eight tests that are revealed in the New Testament that you can walk yourself through. I encourage you to do a Bible study or two this week and see these for yourselves. There's the belief test. Ask yourself the question, do I believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God? If you don't believe that, you can't be saved. Jesus is our only hope of salvation, amen? So if someone doesn't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, they can't be saved. What about the repentance test? Have you turned from your sins, gotten baptized, and put Jesus in charge? The faith test, do you live your life by faith in God, not just by your own five senses? The love test, do you love God? Do you love people? Those are the two greatest commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, the priority test, is there anyone or anything more important to you than Christ? The hunger test, do you have a hunger for God and the things of God? The Holy Spirit test, is there any evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Thank you, Melissa. And so yesterday at our men's breakfast, we talked about this a little bit. I knew we wouldn't have time to do it today, but we need to ask ourselves these questions. Do I show evidence in my life that I am truly a born-again believer and follower of Jesus Christ? And as I shared with the guys yesterday, I'll share with all of you today, as you go through these eight tests, you're going to find some areas in your life that don't match up quite as well as you know they should. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to hell if you don't have all of these eight nailed. But what these eight tests do is reveal, if you are a believer and follower of Christ, that there are some areas that need to be shored up. Amen? There's some areas in your Christianity that are a little bit weak. Let me quickly give you an example. One of the examples that I find quite often among Christians today is the hunger test. Do you hunger for God and the things of God? Yes. So when it comes down to it, many Christians don't desire to go to church every week. That's a red flag. If you don't desire to be in the house of the Lord every week, that's a red flag. There's something wrong because if we're saved, we should be hungry for God and the things of God, right? If we don't want to pick up our Bible and read it during the week, that's a red flag. We should be hungry for the Word of God. If we don't want to spend time in prayer, that's a red flag because we should want to communicate with our Commander-in-Chief, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator of the universe. We should want to spend time with Him in prayer. Amen? And so does that mean you're going to hell if your hunger's not quite there right now? No, not necessarily. If you're a born-again believer and follower of Jesus Christ, your eternal security is okay. 
But that's a red flag that you're not growing in your faith like you should. And that's an indication that you've got some growth needed in that area. Amen. Well, let's focus on this one of the eight tests that Jesus is talking about here in John chapter eight. Once again, notice what he says. If you hold my to my teaching, verse 31, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Jesus echoes this same obedience test elsewhere in the Gospels. In Luke 646, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? In Matthew 7:21, he declares, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Later in the book of John, Jesus says this in John 14:15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And then down in verse 23 of chapter 14, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And nobody says it more bluntly than James. In the book of James, chapter 2, verse 17, James says, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is, is dead. Faith without action is dead. Then down in verse 26 of James 2, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So here in John 8:31, Jesus turns to those who believe his words, and he says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. In other words, guys, belief is a crucial first step. But if you don't obey my teaching, you aren't one of my followers. Truly following me as Lord and Savior requires both belief and obedience. Amen? So does obedience save us? No, it doesn't. But if there's no obedience, it's not real biblical faith. Amen? Faith without works is dead. So how do you know if you're really a Christian? Well, answer the obedience question. Once again, it goes like this. Are you obeying Christ's commands or are you just giving him lip service? It's a good question, isn't it? Are you obeying Christ's commands or are you just giving him lip service? If you're just giving him lip service, then you're probably not saved because faith without works is is dead. So how do you know, ladies, if that guy you're dating is really a Christian? He says he's a Christian. He says he believes in Jesus. He says he's saved. He says he's born again. How do you know if he's really saved? Well, ask the obedience test question. Does he truly obey Jesus's teachings or does he just give him lip service? Parents, how do we know if our kids are really saved? Well, are they obeying Christ's commands without you forcing them to? Or are they just giving him lip service? How do we know if our own pastor is saved? Is he obeying Christ's commands or is he just giving him lip service? Do you see how important this test is? Jesus makes it clear by their fruit, you will recognize him. If there's no fruit, if there's no obedience, then it's not real faith. Notice in verse 32 what Jesus says will happen to those who do have real faith and obey his teaching. Verse 32 is such a glorious verse. Most of us have it memorized. Then you will know the truth and the truth will once again do what? Will set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Say that with me. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Turn to the person next to you and say, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus reveals a very powerful principle here. Knowing and embracing the truth leads to freedom. Say that with me. Knowing and embracing the truth leads to freedom. Anyone who has successfully gone through a drug or alcohol recovery program knows this principle. What's the first of the 12 steps of AA? Those of you who may have been experienced uh, with AA in the past. You, 
Okay, number one, step number one of AA. We admitted that we were powerless over alcohol or drugs, that our lives had become unmanageable, right? That's the first of 12 steps. We admitted that we were powerless over that alcohol or drug, that our lives had become unmanageable. So an alcoholic will never be free of his or her addiction until they believe and embrace the truth. I have a drinking problem. I cannot fix my own problem. I need help, right? A drug addict will never make it step one into recovery without admitting, I have a drug problem. I cannot fix my own problem. I need help. Across our nation, there are millions of teenage boys and young men and even old men who are addicted to porn. And they will continue to be addicted to porn because they refuse to admit, I have a problem with porn. I cannot fix my own addiction to porn. I need help. Whatever sin it is that you deal with, whether you've ever considered it to be an addiction or not, the same holds true for any sin. We have to come to the point where we can humbly and truthfully admit, I have a problem with my sin. I cannot fix my own sin problem, and I need help. Amen? As you look at your own life right now, regardless of what your sin is that you struggle with, The first step is to honestly and humbly admit that you need help and you can't fix it. Here in John 8, 32, Jesus gives us this wonderful principle about being set free by our knowledge of the truth. But, of course, his main focus here isn't on addiction. His main focus, of course, isn't on recovery from addiction. His main focus is on salvation. In John 14, 6, Jesus declares, I am the way and the truth. And the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. So what is the truth that Jesus is referring to when he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free? Well, you could paraphrase it this way, verses 31 and 32. Jesus is in essence saying, if you believe my words and obey my teaching, you are really my disciples and catch this, then you will know me and I will set you free. Amen. You will know me. And I will set you free. You could also, keeping in mind that Jesus is talking about his teaching here, you could translate it this way. If you believe my words and obey my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know and understand my teaching. And my teaching will set you free. Do you believe that, church? That Jesus and his teaching can set you free? Oftentimes Christians say they believe it. But when the rubber hits the road... It's not necessarily demonstrated in our actions. We have to ask the question, what does he set us free from? And Jesus answers that question in verse 34. I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is what? Is a slave to sin. This is another powerful insight that Jesus shares in the passage here. Let me ask you, when we consciously choose to sin, especially when we sin in a certain way for the first time, why do we do it? Why do we sin? Yeah. Peer pressure sometimes. Would you say, Renee? Because we want to. Doesn't it boil down to that? Why do we take that first drink? Why do we take that first hit? Uh, Why do boyfriends and girlfriends sleep with each other instead of patiently waiting until their wedding night? And the simple answer is because we want to. We want to sin. Sin is fun, right? 
Be honest. How many of you recognize that sin can be really fun? Okay, the rest of you need to work on your lying problem. Come on. How many of you have to admit sin is otherwise we would never sin, right? Yeah, sin is fun. Sin is fun. Why do kids, teenagers, young adults, old adults have sex all the time? They think it's fun. And so when it comes down to it, we know that what Jesus says here is true. But at a gut level, we're not quite sure it's true. Because you know what? Set me free. You know what? Sometimes sinning makes you feel pretty free. Sinning seems like so much fun. But when it comes down to it, we human beings can be pretty naive. We naively think that we're in charge of our own sin. We call the shots. We're in charge. We're in the driver's seat. I only sin when I choose to sin, right? My sin is a slave to me. And Jesus responds here in John 8 and says, Do not be so naive. Your sin is not a slave to you. You are a slave to your sin. And just as in Jesus' day, a household slave could not set himself free from slavery, if you were an indentured servant, you had to keep serving pretty much till your dying day in that house. You couldn't up and say, hey, I'm tired of working for you. Master, I'm out of here. Didn't happen. If you were set free, it was only if the Father or the Son set you free. And Jesus says here, you are an indentured servant to sin. And there is no way you can set yourself free. But if the Son sets you free, amen, you will be free indeed. In verse 33, the religious leaders interrupted Jesus with a claim that they were already living in freedom. They say, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Honestly, the religious leaders were full of hot air. Think about it. We've never been slaves to anyone. Did those guys even know their own history? You you go back to when they were in Egypt. Were they just hanging out in Egypt playing with, uh, you know, jackals by the pyramids? No. What were they doing in Egypt? They were slaves in Egypt, right? They were slaves to Pharaoh. They were slaves to the Egyptians. Moses came as the deliverer, brought them to the promised land. You fast forward a hundred years or so under Joshua. Joshua leads them into the promised land. Uh, eventually Joshua dies. And what happens? You get to the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, seven different nations, in a sense, conquer Israel or part of Israel. They're slaves to seven different nations just in the book of Judges. And then Assyria comes and conquers 10 of the 12 tribes. They're slaves to Assyria. And then they're slaves to Babylon. And then they're slaves to Persia. And then the Greek Empire, the Macedonian Empire comes. And they're slaves to the Macedonians. And then as they're speaking here in John chapter 8 in the temple courts, as they're speaking, they're slaves to the Romans. The Romans were an occupying force in Israel as they spoke these words. What are they talking about? We've never been slaves to anyone. Duh. You've been slaves to all sorts of different nations over the history of Israel. But even more importantly, Jesus says, and more tragically, you are slaves to sin. And it's clear in the early verses of this passage that the Jewish leaders prided themselves in being descendants of Abraham. So notice as we pick up again here in verse 37, Jesus is going to take the opportunity to teach them some important lessons about who the real descendants are. Of Abraham are so picking up here in verse 37 still in John chapter 8 I know you are Abraham's descendants yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word I'm telling you what I have seen in the father's presence and you do what you have heard from your father 
Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not demon-possessed, Jesus said, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that anyone who keeps your word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you've seen Abraham. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple guards and the temple grounds. Well, there's so much wonderful meat in this passage, more than we can chew on during the next few minutes we have together. But I'd like to draw your attention to a few highlights. In verses 37 and 38, Jesus acknowledges that the Jewish leaders are descendants of Abraham, but they aren't children of Abraham. You see that? Look at verse 37 again. He says, you are Abraham's descendants. And then in verse 38, you do what you have heard from your father. At this point, Jesus doesn't tell the religious father, religious leaders who their father really is. But it's clear from what he says in verse 38, it ain't Abraham. You might be Abraham's descendants, but you sure ain't his kids. He's sure not your father. And so the Jewish leaders, they get a little upset with this, right? Verse 39, look at it again. They protest. They say, Abraham is our father. To which Jesus responds, no, he isn't. If you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things that Abraham did, right? If he was your real father, you'd do what he did. So we ask the question, well, what did Abraham do that these Jewish leaders weren't doing? Well, first of all, Abraham is known as the man of man of faith, right? Yeah, the man of faith. There in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, he's one of the main guys spotlighted in that chapter. He's one of the great heroes of the faith. And so he's known as a man of faith. So he had faith in the words of God. Did the Jewish leaders have faith in the words of God? <clears throat> Strike one. 
What else was Abraham known for? He didn't simply believe the words of the Lord, right? He acted upon it. Think of sacrificing his son Isaac. God says, I want you to take your son, your only son, take him up on Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering to me. What does Abraham do at the crack of dawn the next morning? He heads out the front door with his son, the fire, the wood in hand. He has every intention of slaughtering his son because he believes that's what God wants. He was a man of obedience, wasn't he? How about the Jewish leaders here in John 8? Are they walking in obedience to God's command? Strike two. Two strikes against him. What else was Abraham known for? He was called a friend of God, was he not? Were the Jewish leaders friends of God? Strike three. These guys are not following in Abraham's footsteps. So Jesus tells them in no uncertain terms, just because you've got Abraham's blood running through your veins doesn't make Abraham your father. The only father we have is God himself, they say. Look at verse 41. The only father we have is God himself. We are not illegitimate children. Now, this is pretty heavy what they say here in verse 41. Some Bible scholars believe that when they yell at Jesus, we are not illegitimate children, that they were poking fun at Jesus' way of coming to earth. Possibly some of these Jewish leaders knew that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. So if Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, and they refused to believe that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit as the Son of God. If they refused to believe either of those two, in their minds, the only option left was that Jesus was illegitimate. In other words, as they're yelling at the top of their lungs at Jesus in this verse, they were likely saying this, Jesus, at least we're not bastards. It's very likely what they were saying here. And if that's what they were saying, they were saying, Jesus, the Holy Spirit is an adulterer and a fornicator. And if that is not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's pretty darn close, isn't it? So what they're saying here, if they were in fact trying to slam Jesus' birth, it's a pretty heavy accusation. So think about this for a moment. The Jewish leaders make this audacious claim that they are not illegitimate children. Verse 41, they claim that God is their father. Jesus corrects them once again. He says in verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God. He sent me. And then in verse 44, Jesus puts in plain English or actually in plain Aramaic who the Jewish leaders real spiritual father is. He said, you belong to your father, notice it there, the devil. There he tells him. He was just kind of hinting at it earlier. Now he tells him point blank. You want to know who your real father is? Your spiritual father is the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. He is a liar and the father of lies. And Jesus' implication is clear. And so are you. He was a murderer and so are you. He's the father of lies. He peddles lies, so do you, so do you. How many of you would guess that Jesus' teaching here didn't go over too well with the religious leaders? Yeah? Yeah, maybe it didn't go over too well, right? Well, verse 48, let's see. The Jewish leaders do what bullies do when they can't handle the truth. They resort to slander. <laughs> and uh, notice what they say to Jesus there beginning in verse 48. They call Jesus a Samaritan which is an ethnic slur. 
That would be tantamount to calling someone the N-word today. It was an ethnic slur. To call a Jewish rabbi a Samaritan was a huge insult. They believed that the Samaritans were half-breed lowlifes. And so they're using their worst ethnic slur against Jesus. They call him a Samaritan. And what else do they say about him? Say he's demon-possessed. Now, Jesus loved the Samaritans, right? He'd already ministered to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. So he doesn't even respond to that ethnic slur. You're calling me a Samaritan? In essence, he says, well, it's okay with me. I love the Samaritans. I came for them as well. But Jesus does respond to their claim that he's demon-possessed. He says, I'm not demon-possessed. I'm not demon-possessed. What are you thinking? I'm not demon-possessed. Notice what he says there. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the chapter ends with Jesus making a clear claim to deity. He refers to himself by the holiest name of God. I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. That's Yahweh, the holiest name of God. Verse 58, he says, Before Abraham was born, I am. And for the religious leaders, that was the last straw. They pick up stones to throw them at Jesus' head, and Jesus slips away through the crowd out of the temple grounds. It wasn't his time to die, not yet. So Jesus slips into the crowd and he hides himself. Well, as we look at this great passage today, it's at least three lessons I think we can pull from it. I've got them there on the back of your handout. I encourage you to fill in those blanks and take these to heart. So much wonderful meat in this passage. Lesson number one, belief in Christ is just the beginning. The road to heaven is paved with obedience and growth. Say that with me. Belief in Christ is just the beginning. The road to heaven is paved with obedience and growth. Sadly, hell will be filled with people who have wonderful theology. Sad, isn't it? Hell will be filled with people who believed the truth about Jesus, whose head was filled here on earth with knowledge of the Word of God. They believed in the Trinity. They believed the Bible to be the inspired word of God. They believed most of the things that would be right on our doctrinal statement as a Christian church. Why are they in hell? Because they believed but didn't obey. It was all up here. And what was up here didn't travel that critical 18 inches down to their heart. And it didn't transform their lives. Their brains were full of the right beliefs. But their beliefs didn't save them because of this simple truth. Unless your belief produces obedience, it's not real faith. Unless you allow your beliefs to change your heart and your words and your actions and your priorities and your goals and everything else about you, it's a dead faith. And dead faith, my friends, is a one-way ticket to hell. It really is. Dead faith is a one-way ticket to hell. The only way Christ's truth can save your soul is if you put it into practice. So don't merely listen to the word. Don't even just believe the word. Put it into practice. Do what it says. The road to heaven is paved with obedience and growth in Christ. Amen. Lesson number two. Sin brings slavery. Following Christ brings freedom. Read this with me. Sin brings slavery. Following Christ brings freedom. Freedom. 
One of Satan's oldest tricks in the book is to convince us of the lie that God's laws enslave us and sin sets us free. I guarantee you, you've believed this at certain points in your life many times. God's laws enslave us, but sin sets us free. The truth is, though, that there is no greater freedom than the freedom that comes in the center of God's will. You discovered that? That's the greatest freedom in life. Everyone who sins, the truth is, is a slave to sin. I like how William Barclay puts it. He says it so well in his commentary as he writes, Sometimes when we are rebuked for doing something wrong or warned against such a thing, our answer is, surely I can do what I like with my own life. But the point is that those who sin are not doing what they like. They're doing what sin likes. They are slaves to the habits, the self-indulgences, the wrong pleasures which have taken hold of them. This is precisely Jesus' point. No one who sins can ever be said to be free. Isn't that true today? Why aren't most people going to church somewhere today? Because they don't feel like it. They don't want to go. They think the church is oppressive. The true freedom is saying, I'm going to state line. I'm going to Vegas. That's freedom, baby. Woo! Let it ride. That's freedom. I drink when I want to drink. I'll smoke a joint when I feel like smoking a joint. I'll go to Vegas when I want to go to Vegas. There's all sorts of things that I want to do, and that's true freedom. Man, you Christians, you go to church and waste your morning if you want. Man, that's so oppressive, that Christianity stuff. And little do they know that they've fallen right into Satan's trap. Little do they know that the only true freedom that comes in life is the freedom that comes in the relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ created us, and he knows you and me better than we know ourselves. And there's no freedom like the freedom that Jesus gives. So it might not make sense to you at this time, but it's true. Sin enslaves, but Christ sets you free. And if Christ sets you free, you will be free indeed. Lesson number three, the most difficult people to win to the Savior are those who do not realize that they have a need. thought that was very well said by Warren Wiersbe, so I didn't change the wording. I just kept his. Read that with me. The most difficult people to win to the Savior are those who do not realize that they have a need. The religious leaders here in John chapter 8 weren't intellectually stupid. They were just spiritually deaf. Because they thought that they were already VIPs in God's eyes. They refused to listen. They refused to understand. They refused to heed Christ's commands. William Barclay puts it this way. He offers this warning. In the last analysis, we will only hear what we want to hear. And if for long enough we attune our ears to our own desires and to the wrong voices, in the end we will be unable to tune in at all to the wavelength of God. That is what the Jews had done. Now, tragically sad, for centuries, the Jews had meticulously transcribed every letter, every word, every jot and tittle of the Old Testament, producing immaculate copies of the originals. They were so precise in how they handled the Word of God, and they meticulously studied the Word of God, but there the Word of God in the flesh was standing in front of them, and they didn't see the Word of God right in front of their own noses. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. 
And so many in our families and so many in our circle of friends, they've had the truth of Jesus Christ right in front of them for years. And they miss what's right in front of their noses. The truth is right there to set them free. And they miss it. I think it's so sad that so many people go through life not even realizing that they're slaves. You take that first drink, it may be because you want to take that first drink. Before too long, those of you who went down the path of alcoholism, you know sooner or later you lose control and your drink now owns you. Those of you that started on the path of drug addiction know the same thing. You started down that path because you wanted to before you know it, your drugs are ruling you. And every day we're surrounded by people enslaved to sin and they don't even know it. And the most difficult people to bring to Christ at times are those that don't even realize they have a need. So I would urge you today, don't make the same tragic mistake the Jewish leaders made. Believe in Christ. Hold to his teaching. And believe and live out the truth that only living in obedience to Christ's commands, only in that can you experience life's greatest freedom. Amen? We have freedom at our fingertips. And we hold it to ourselves so often. Why do we do that? The truth is, whatever our friends, whatever our family, whatever our co-workers are dealing with, whatever they're enslaved to, we hold in our hands the answer. And his name is Jesus Christ. We know the truth. Those around us can also know the truth. And only that truth about Jesus Christ will set them free. Lord Jesus, we do come to you thanking you for all that you've taught us. Thank you for being the awesome God that you are. Thank you for setting us free from our sin. Lord, we don't want to continue walking in the chains and shackles, oblivious to the fact that what we once thought was fun, what we once thought was liberating, has enslaved us, set us free. I pray if there's anyone in this room today or watching this broadcast today who realizes that they have not yet been set free from their sin, I pray they would come to you in prayer right now and say, Lord Jesus, please set me free. I believe that you are the Christ and the Son of the living God. Please forgive me of my sin. Please come into my life, wash my sins away, and help me to walk in the freedom of obedience to you from this point forward. I promise to love you, to obey you, and to walk in your steps from this point forward until you call me home to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.